Well, maybe we can sing a little more later if the Lord has has that. Um, would you turn to Mark chapter 9? <clears throat> I want to read two accounts of the transfiguration tonight. The first one is in Mark chapter 9, and the next one's in Luke chapter 9. And you, it might be helpful to you if you keep your place in both of those. But uh, we'll start with Mark chapter 9 and uh, verse 1. And he was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And then if you would skip on over to Luke chapter 9. And verse 28. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one, on those days any of the things which they had seen.
Let's pray once again here. Father, we pray that you would instruct us from these accounts of your transfiguration. Help us now for your glory and the good of your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What I would like to do this evening is to take this theme of the Lord's transfiguration and use it in an allegorical way to teach some truths about the transformation that takes place in the Christian life. I gave a message similar to this about 15 years ago, so I doubt if any of you remember that. And uh, I've changed a few things because I've changed. That's good. Let me just say here, before we get in too far into this, that allegorical interpretations are often overdone, and uh, they should not be our primary way of reading and understanding the scriptures. Um, By allegory, we mean looking for some hidden or symbolic meaning in the scriptures uh, besides the straightforward literal Uh, sense of the text. Now some, obviously we know that some sections of scripture are very symbolic. Some things are allegorical, and Paul actually uses that word um, to say that he's teaching some things by way of allegory. But in general, the scriptures should be taken in its literal, historical uh, sense, and so we have to be careful about what I'm doing tonight. Really, it's, you can teach about anything you want to if you uh, aren't careful with using this thing of allegory. It a lot depends on what what you come into that section of scripture believing already, as far as what you pull out of it by uh, allegory. So it is somewhat subjective, and um, it needs to be controlled. It, it, when it gets uncontrolled. Uh, People have gone off into all kinds of different things through the use of allegorical this allegorical method. Uh, so what I'm presenting here tonight is not the actual meaning of the text. Now that ought to, you know, say, all right, I'll go somewhere else, but <laughs> just, just stay with me here. Uh, it's not the actual uh, literal historical meaning of the text, but the truths that I am going to present, I believe, are truths that are uh, found in other places in the scriptures. The reason that I believe it's justifiable to draw some parallels between Christ's transfiguration and the change that takes place in conversion and onward in the Christian life is that the same word that's used to describe what happens to Christ here on the Mount of Transfiguration is used in two other places in the New Testament, and these two other places deal with the transformation that takes place in the Christian life. The word transfigured in Greek, which I do not know, but I read this in the book, uh, commentary, in Greek is metamorpho, that when we read 
he was transfigured. The word actually is the Greek metamorpho. Now we get our word metamorphosis from that word. Meta meaning change, morph meaning form. So metamorph is you change form. Um, now, where is that found elsewhere in the scriptures? Well, let's look at them real quick here. Romans chapter 12 should come to mind without even looking it up, but we'll turn to it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That is metamorpho. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's the one example of it. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 18. Now these, when I first saw this, this really was revolutionary to me. Maybe you've seen it before. Uh, if you were here 15 years ago, you heard it before. You've probably heard it since then. But just think about this. This is the same word used of Christ's transfiguration, used for us, used for what happens in the Christian life. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all... That's every Christian. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, transfigured, metamorphosed, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There is a metamorphosis that's taking place in every Christian's life that is changing that person into the image of Christ. So, I don't feel like it's totally out in, in la-la land to say that I can take these verses related to Christ's transfiguration and draw some truths that relate to our transfiguration. Uh, so, with that introduction, let's look at this, these accounts of the Lord's metamorphosis and draw out some parallels to ours. That's what we're going to try to do. And again, this is allegory here. And uh, if it doesn't fit the rest of the scripture, just forget it. But let's begin in Luke chapter 9 and <clears throat> consider the fact that it says here, Let's just turn to it, 9.28. That he took Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. The first point that I would make by way of allegory is that transfiguration begins as we pray. Initially, as we pray in repentance and faith, seeking God to change us, to move in our hearts, to forgive our sins. That's where the metamorphosis begins. Um, and it continues in our lives as we seek God from then on. Surely one of the primary means of this transformation, this transfiguration in our lives, is by way of prayer, asking and seeking and knocking. 
A-S-K, ask, seek, knock. Keep on, keep on asking and seeking and knocking. As you do that, there'll be a metamorphosis in your life and mine. So that's the first thing. It was on the, the, uh, in the, on the mountain as they prayed that this took place. The second thing I would say is in verse 29, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became, became different. There's another thing that happens when, when this transfiguration takes place. One of the things that God does is he works in your countenance. The appearance of the face changes. Matthew, we didn't read his account, but it, it actually says that Christ's face shone like the sun. Shone like the sun. Matthew 17, 2. Now, I know that this is not always evident immediately. Sometimes it is. Sometimes when a person's converted, you can tell right off. I've, I've seen several examples of that in my own life where you could just tell God did something and the reason you could tell it was by their countenance. Now I want to read just a, a short account here to give a little feel for this. Um, there's a minister uh, in Scotland. Well, he grew up in Scotland, but he was pastoring in Canada, J.C. McKayley, and uh, he wrote a book on personal evangelism, and he tells his story. I think, for instance, of an elderly German who lived a rough life in, in the northern Ontario bush. His English was poor, his mind was undeveloped, and his life one of very narrow limits. His countenance was dark and hard, but the Spirit of God stirred in his soul a sense of need, and he found his way to our services. One Sunday evening, I took him into a little side room and tried to present the way of salvation. He did not seem to understand, and I almost despaired of his ever coming to the light. Finally, I suggested that we kneel down and pray. I prayed that God would give light to, this dark, to, to the darkened mind. When we lifted our heads and arose from our knees, I saw something that startled me and which I shall never forget. The darkness and the hardness had completely fallen away from, from my friend's countenance. Instead, his face was lit up with a heavenly glow like a sunburst. Like a sunburst, you see? His face shone like the sun. His limited vocabulary made it impossible for him to say much, but his face spoke volumes. The presence of the Lord in that little room was so real, and the joy was unspeakable. So I say God does it that way sometimes right at, at conversion. Now, it's not always that way. Sometimes there's a process where God is changing your countenance as you see more and more of Christ and his life and death and resurrection on your behalf and what, what this means to you. There comes then a radiance into the life because of what Christ has done. Um, Psalm 34, 5, They looked unto him and were radiant. They looked unto him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Sin brings shame. Sin casts down. Just as it did in the garden 
Sin brought shame. But God has a remedy for that. He clothes sinners in the righteousness of Christ. Um, I just read today that uh, this missionary, first American missionary, I believe, Adoniram Judson, went to Burma, and it was not easy going. There was some really tough times, and there were some tears, many tears. But nevertheless, the Burmese had a name for him. They called him Mr. Glory Face. (laughs) Think of that. Mr. Glory Face. You know, just because there's tears and sorrow, a Christian even cries different than a non-Christian. I can't explain it. I just know it's true. Well, anyway, it says here in our, in our account that the appearance of his face became different, and then it says his clothing became white and gleaming. White and gleaming. So garments that are radiantly white. Well, obviously, I mean, doesn't that just speak to you of what God does for you? He clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. You get those, you get those gleaming garments as a Christian. Uh, it says uh, in Luke's account, in the margin anyway, his clothing became white and flashing like lightning. And this is what happens for us at conversion. We're given spotless, pure, righteous robes of Christ. And as we follow Christ more and more, the more we realize this, the more we see of it, the more we understand of it, uh, our lives actually change and become more glorious. They're, they're transfigured. They're transformed from glory to glory. So, again, an allegorical application of this. Um, Verse 4 in Mark now. Um, Maybe I lost you. I'm switching back and forth, and maybe I I don't remember if I told you where I was, but (laughs) Mark chapter 9, verse 4. It says, And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, one of the great prophets of Israel. There they were speaking to Christ. There's probably a number of things you could uh, draw from this, but I think it speaks of how God uses the communion of the saints in our lives to bring us on in our transfiguration. God was using Moses and Elijah, two saints of the Old Testament, to speak to Christ in this time of transfiguration. And God uses other Christians in our lives as he is transforming us. Now, we don't know what they said to him, but we do know the subject. 
to find out, you'd have to turn, you don't need to necessarily do this, I'll read it to you. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So that's what they were speaking to him about. We know the subject, his departure, that is his death on the cross, which is the source and the subject of our communion also. Our communion with God and our communion with one another has to do with his departure, his death on the cross. Our transfiguration is based on his crucifixion. And I would say that also from this, that there is a daily taking up the cross in our lives that changes us. Um, Christ had just spoken of that earlier in Luke chapter 9, taking up the cross daily and following him. So what we're talking about in our, our transfiguration is not always a pleasant thing, and it's not always an easy thing. Taking up your cross involves some things that are difficult and not always pleasant. Nevertheless, it is part of the transfiguration process. Uh, in verse 32 of Luke, it says this, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. This, I think, could be interpreted so as to remind us that Others often are not aware of what we're going through as we're being transfigured. I say that because they missed out on part of this. They were asleep. Isn't that incredible? Something this magnificent, and they were asleep through part of it. Well, God can be doing things in our lives, and people may not realize it. That's part of what's brought forth here. Um, I'd say also that we see as we read on, and as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Sometimes people will say some things to us that they don't realize what they're saying, and uh, they might not really be right on track. That happens. It's part of the transfiguration. Also, you just have to realize sometimes what's going on in your life is misunderstood. Uh, Peter didn't know what to make of what was going on, at least at that time. Now, God changed that. Peter later realized what God was showing them there on this Mount of Transfiguration. He tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 17. Uh, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, that is, Peter and James and John, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure 
to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. So God, you know, Peter didn't understand it initially, and he said some things that were not quite accurate, but God brought him to a realization of what was going on. He realized that all of the law and the prophets, all that they had to say was centered on Christ. He, he didn't get that before. And you won't, you, know, you won't understand the Old Testament until you get that. Uh, to understand the law and the prophets rightly, you must listen to Christ. That's what God uh, told uh, Peter and the rest of them. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's the only way you're going to understand the Bible is by realizing that it's Christ-centered. You've got to listen to him and what he had to say and what he's saying if you're going to understand the Scriptures. But the point I'm wanting to bring out from this is that our transfiguration often involves areas that are not easily understood by others. But God knows what's going on. God knows what's going on, and he will bring out the truth when the time is right. He has a time, and he'll bring out the truth when the time is right. Next, I would point out this little phrase, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Mark 9, 7, this is my beloved son. In this allegorical interpretation, we could see that we could see that this uh, might be used as a reference to the reality of God's spirit witnessing to our spirit that we're children of God. But the problem with that way of dealing with it is that this was not that was not said for Christ's benefit. That was said for the disciples' benefit. So I think we should point out from this, or could point out from this, that God will, at least in some occasions, some uh, situations, as we seek to walk with God, cause people to realize that what we tell them of God's truth is actually from God. That they're hearing more than the words of just a man or a woman. God is speaking through us. Certainly that has to be an amazing aspect of our transfiguration. How could God possibly do that with people like you and I? Well, it's because he's, trans he's transforming us, you see. And therefore he can use us as his ambassadors. And, and there are occasions, we, sometimes we, we can sense it a little bit and, and realize and even see it in, in the person we're talking with, that this what what I'm saying and what they're hearing is more than what I'm saying. It's it's God using a transformed life to speak into another's heart. So the transfiguration. Well, a couple of other points here. As we are transformed Others, more and more, begin to see more of Christ and less of us. I like, 
I like the way it's put in Mark uh, chapter 9, verse 8. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Isn't that a wonderful prospect? That people could actually see Christ in us. Now that will, will not finally be fully realized, this conformity to the image of Christ until we're in heaven. Then we'll be like him. Think of that in heaven. <laughs> people will look at us and see Christ. When they look at us, they won't see any more sin, any more selfishness, any more of that stuff that you still see some of. But God's transforming us, and the, the process will be completed uh, when he takes us on home. And uh, you'll look around, and you won't see any, anyone but Jesus. I mean, in terms of of what comes out of that personality. We'll still be real people, individuals, and yet we'll all see Christ in one another completely. What a, what a transfiguration. And then lastly, I think this portion could speak to us about humility. As you see that it says here in Mark 9.9, 9, and as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. Humility is the safest position for us now. Take the humble position, take the low position, and let God exalt you in his time. That's what Christ was saying here. Don't go out and tell anybody about this right now. There'll be a time after I've risen from the dead. And for us right now, the proper attitude is to take that humble position, that low position, and let God exalt us as he sees fit in his time. Well, these were allegorical interpretations of this passage. Be careful when you hear this done. Um, make sure that the things said fit with the rest of the Bible's teachings. Again, I felt justified in taking this approach because of this word metamorphosis. You don't have to agree with how I've presented this tonight, but I do hope you remember this one thing, that... God is working a marvelous and miraculous metamorphosis, a transfiguration in all of his children. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, the, the scripture there really, I think, just says you're either going to be conformed to the world or transformed into the image of Christ as your mind is renewed. Maybe God will use something said here tonight to renew your mind a little bit and transform you a little more into the image of Christ. But we all, and I emphasize the word all, if you're not being transformed, something's wrong because we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed 
into the same image, that image of Christ, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. One last thing. I want to read to you a paragraph from the Encyclopedia Americana on metamorphosis. Do a little allegory, allegorical interpretation here as I read this. One advantage of metamorphosis is that it allows the individual animal, speaking of like a butterfly, for instance, it allows the individual animal to exploit two dissimilar environments during its lifetime, earth and heaven. I'm not going to give you all these. You just, you just do it yourself. The caterpillar, for example, usually lives by eating leaves and is well adapted for creeping about on its food plant. After metamorphosis, the same animal has become a nectar-feeding butterfly whose wings can carry it over long distances. <laughs> All right. Think about that. 